Well, we all know the benefits of a physical examination, right? We go to the doctor, uh, hopefully once a year or so, we go to the doctor and we uh, let the doctor examine us physically to see uh, things that perhaps we can't see for ourselves. He'll take a blood draw to see if we have high cholesterol or if we have proper uh, vitamins in our blood. Do we have iron deficiencies or other deficiencies? And he'll feel around for lumps and bumps and spots and moles and things that oughtn't be there. Uh, and he'll see if there's any cause for alarm. And so we have to go to the doctor uh, to look for things that we can't see ourselves. Uh, but we also should be monitoring, monitoring ourselves physically as well. Uh, there are things that we can see. We can look at our bodies and we can see things that perhaps don't belong there, a mole that might be a little alarming or maybe a lump or something that we think probably shouldn't be there. Uh, many ladies find their own breast cancer by doing self-examination. So it's a wise thing to examine ourselves. We should be actively evaluating ourselves for these things so that when we go to the doctor, we can uh, raise these issues with him and let him uh, take a look and see if we're okay or not. Because the last thing we want is to have a false sense of security that we are healthy when in fact we're really not healthy. And if that's true for our physical condition, it's much more true even for our spiritual condition. Because after all, our physical problems one day will end, right? We're all going to die someday. I'm here to encourage you this morning with that bit of good news. We're all going to die this someday, not this morning, but we're all going to die someday. Uh, and that uh, will end our physical problems. But when we die, if we have not evaluated ourselves spiritually, then we might, fi might find that we have a real problem, a problem that doesn't just last for our physical lives, but that lasts for all eternity. And we may be deluded into thinking that we are in the kingdom of God when really we are not. And so security is good, but false security is not good. In fact, it's quite dangerous. And so that's what we'll be talking about this morning. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the Sermon on the Mount with uh, the Israel trip and last week's uh, slideshow presentation. So it's been three weeks uh, since we've been in it. So I just want to review for a minute where we are and where we've been uh, so that we can properly place ourselves within the sermon. I remember in the, from the beginning of the sermon all the way till verse, uh, the middle of chapter 7, let's say, verse 12, uh, Jesus was describing uh, the attributes, the characteristics of people who are already in the kingdom of God. And they've proven that by the attitudes of their hearts and the behavior uh, that they are exhibiting. Uh, and so we find that they are poor in spirit, that they mourn their sin, that they're meek, they hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, they're merciful, they are peacemakers, uh, they're pure in heart, and their righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because they're not relying on their own works or following man-made rules to get into the kingdom of heaven. They have trusted in Jesus's righteousness. And we see that through about the first two and a half chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. And then beginning in verse uh, 713, uh, what we find is that Jesus is now going to give illustrations about how we can know that we are in the kingdom of heaven, that we're exhibiting the qualities and the behaviors and the attitudes that show that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And he used several illustrations uh, to show us this. And he started with the narrow gate, right? One way to miss the kingdom of heaven is to miss the narrow gate and to find yourself having gone through the broad road that leads to destruction. So we want to be sure that we're on the narrow gate and, and we won't find that narrow gate unless we've made an intentional decision to get off the broad road, look for the narrow gate, enter through it, and then proceed on the narrow road that leads to life. 
Another way to miss the kingdom of heaven is to follow false prophets who would keep us on that broad road and we would just wander aimlessly following after these false prophets and we'll never find the narrow gate. And Jesus said that we would know those false prophets by their fruit. And that means the words they speak and the work that they produce. So watch the prophets that you're following. Uh, Beware of false prophets. Follow true prophets so as not to miss the narrow gate. And we've talked about those warnings already. So that kind of brings us up to present. Today we're going to talk about the next warning, which is really a continuation of being led astray uh, by false prophets. But here uh, it can be much more uh, confusing to us or perhaps even sneaky uh, that it sneaks up upon us is that we can be deluded and led astray by ourselves, if you can even believe that. We We can be fooled, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're in the kingdom of heaven when we're not, having a false sense of security rather than real security. So we want to be sure we are examining ourselves uh, just to know that we are in the kingdom of heaven. So I want to read these three verses again, and then we'll, we'll talk about them. Uh, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So immediately, what we see is that there are people who are going to call out the name Lord, Lord, but they won't get into the kingdom of heaven. It's only those who do the will of the Father who get into the kingdom of heaven. And if that's true, it's very important to know then what the will of God is. Lots of people want to go to heaven. We see them all crying out, Lord, Lord. Uh, And many of those same people are confident that they will go to heaven. And they're going to find themselves absolutely stunned when they are turned away at the gate. And so uh, we wonder, you know, what is it about these people? Why will they be stunned? Why will they be turned away? Well, according to this passage, it looks like they said the right words. And it looks like they did uh, good works. But still, it wasn't enough. Doing the will of God apparently requires more than what these folks offered. So we want to know what the will of the Father is. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but I find these verses to be the scariest verses in the entire Bible. These verses are really scary, right? We We read them and we think, well, am I among those people? Is he going to say, depart from me? I never knew you. Well, Uh, I I think that that we're we're just in a scary couple of verses here, but I hope that we can uh, figure out what they mean and and, uh, give us peace at the end of this. And I was thinking, you know, Revelation is pretty scary, but in Revelation, uh, these are people who are openly rebellious and openly hostile uh, to God, and they're the ones who are suffering the wrath of God. But here you have people who are merrily going along about their business. They think they're in right relationship to God. They think they are saved. They think that uh, they are in the kingdom of heaven, and then they're going to find out that they're not. And so I want us to have confidence today that Jesus is never going to say to any one of us, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. 
Uh, but along the way, we might be made a little bit uncomfortable. And I think it's okay every now and then for us to suffer some discomfort in this room. Uh, we're told that we, uh, as preachers, are supposed to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And so if you're too comfortable today, uh, this message is for you. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what it means uh, as we look about this. Uh, we want to be sure that we self-examine, uh, and it's never comfortable to self-examine, but sometimes uh, we want to do it just to give our own selves the assurance that these verses will never apply to us. So what is the will of the Father? Uh, you know, there are two schools of theology out there about what it means to uh, do the will of the Father so as to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and uh, you probably have heard of Lordship Salvation at this point, so I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about that. Uh, when I was in seminary, uh, I heard of Lordship Salvation for the first time. I had never heard of it before. Uh, John MacArthur, of course, is one of its champions. Uh, and Lordship Salvation says that you have to make a confession of faith, and then you have to be obedient uh, to the Word of God. Uh, and that accompanies the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. And if you don't, if you're not obedient, then you're not saved. Uh, so you have to make him Lord over your life. And these verses are pretty good evidence for Lordship Salvation, because we see that it's he who does the will of the Father. So it seems like it's more than just belief. Uh, so this is one of the verses they rely on. So uh, in Lordship Salvation, the will of the Father is not just a confession of faith in Jesus Christ, but it's obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ as well. And so I have to be honest, when I first heard of Lordship Salvation, uh, my knees were knocking. I was scared to death. I was, I was worried that I wasn't saved because I knew at that time, and I know today, that I am not fully obedient to the will of God. Uh, there is uh, sin in my life, like there's sin in everyone's life. And, and uh, so uh, these verses really scared me. I asked myself the hard questions. Uh, does my life withstand his examination? Uh, am I obedient to him or am I just making a profession in him that's not followed by obedience? Do I refuse to submit to his authority? Uh, do I know him? Am I hungering to know him more? Do I love God's people well? And am I showing uh, the love of Christ to the world? And I had to be honest with myself. Uh, if I was doing a self-examination, I could not give myself a 100% score on any one of those, and I don't think any of us can. Uh, and so I wrote a paper about the validity of Lordship Salvation, and that helped me a lot. And I came to the conclusion uh, that Lordship Salvation is a little bit works-heavy as it pertains to our salvation itself. Uh, I think it blurs the lines of salvation and sanctification. Uh, and so salvation and sanctification are certainly related, but they're not the same. Uh, salvation is, of course, the one-time event where we believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And when we believe that, we are sealed for all eternity in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, but sanctification is the lifelong process that follows our salvation, where we become more and more like Christ as we submit to his will uh, and intend to obey him. Uh, and so, to me, in my estimation, uh, Lordship Salvation places a little too, too much emphasis on works as part of salvation. Uh, so I believe, of course, that we have to want to obey Jesus Christ. We all should want to do that. And if we, if we make a profession of faith, the next thing that should happen is that we want to obey him. And what will happen is that our lives over time will become more and more obedient to him and will produce more and more evidence that we have submitted our lives to Jesus Christ. But 
I think that lordship salvation is a very heavy burden on a new believer. Uh, and I think for a new believer, uh, it demands just too much too soon that they should be so obedient uh, when they've just made this profession of faith. And I'm also concerned with this uh, about how we can ever have assurance of salvation, how much obedience, how much discipleship, uh, how much repentance, how much uh, obedience are enough. Because the problem of sin still remains, right? After we become saved, Romans 6, right? We still have sin in our lives and we have to deal with it. Uh, so I think Lordship Salvation dilutes the gospel a little bit, uh, the gospel of grace, by not allowing a Christian any room to backslide. And ideally, we would never backslide, right? We would never sin. Every day would be a march up the hill, uh, becoming closer and closer, more and more Christ-like. But we just know that that's not reality. Uh, the Christian life is sometimes two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back. Uh, we're constantly struggling, striving against sin to become more Christ-like. Uh, so we'll continue to struggle with sin, as Paul talked about uh, in great detail in Romans 6 and 7. Now, MacArthur might disagree with my characterization of lordship salvation, but to me, uh, it makes works uh, an, an essential ingredient of saving faith. And of course, we know that that's not true because Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. And Romans 3, 28 says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So the Bible makes it clear that a person is saved by faith and not by works. So uh, I think what we have with Lordship Salvation is, is the will of the Father that includes obedience uh, as part of salvation. And so I would tend to separate them out a little bit more. Now, there's another position uh, with regard to how faith and works go together as it pertains to our salvation. And that's called the free grace position. And it says that all you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ and you are saved. Genuine conversion does not necessarily result in a transformed life. Uh, you don't necessarily have to bear any fruit uh, by loving God more, loving Christ more, uh, loving his people more. Uh, a genuine conversion can include just a profession of belief and yet sanctification never occurs. And we know that the Bible makes it clear that for a Christian, we are supposed to surrender, we're supposed to obey, we're supposed to engage in discipleship as part of the process of what it means to be a believer. And every true believer should be engaging in that process if they are truly saved and if they are truly walking in faith. Uh, in Romans chapter 6, Paul was addressing believers, believers he's writing to. And this is what he says. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. And so we see that uh, a true belief requires more than just a profession. The free grace view is what uh, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. If any of you have read the book, The Cost of Discipleship, you'd be familiar with this term, cheap grace. Uh, here's how he defined it. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And I think he's right. Uh, Jesus 
paid everything so that we could be saved. And so uh, should, it, should our lives not be transformed? Uh, should we go on sinning, as it says in Romans chapter 6? The answer is, of course we shouldn't. We should, out of love and obedience, obey Jesus Christ. And we have to struggle against our sin because our sin and our sin nature is not killed just because we are saved. So we have two extremes. We have the free grace view, which is easy believism, where we can just call on the name of the Lord and be saved and not yield any fruit. That's faith without obedience. And then you have lordship salvation, uh, which is faith that includes obedience and perhaps is even made part of faith, that the obedience is made part of faith. But I think there's a middle ground, and that's kind of where I think we want to land today uh, between the two. Remember, we're asking the question, what is the will of God? How is it that we are acceptable to God so that he will welcome us into heaven without saying, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Well, Jesus doesn't say specifically what the will of God is in this particular passage, right? He just says, he who does the will of God is the one who is going to enter. So uh, the will of God can mean two things. Uh, it can certainly mean that, there, uh, that, that he's talking about belief in Jesus Christ himself. There are several passages in the Bible that say it's the will of God that we believe in his son, right? And John uh, chapter 6, verse 40 is a good example for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So uh, it is the will of God that we believe in his Son. Uh, but it's also the will of God that we be obedient to his commandments. Now, remember, this is uh, Jesus speaking to people on the, on the mount early in his ministry. Uh, these people would have known the Ten Commandments, and Jesus has been teaching them through the first uh, almost three chapters now. This, this Sermon on the Mount is almost complete. He's been telling them what it looks like to be uh, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, uh, to obey the commands, this is what you have to do. And so he's been teaching them against what the scribes and Pharisees have been saying. He's teaching them that obedience means that you have a true heart change. Uh, and so the middle ground, in my view, is a combination of belief and obedience, where obedience is not a part of salvation, but obedience results from salvation. It naturally follows salvation. It must follow salvation in order for your faith to be real. So first you have this confession of faith, and then you have obedience that shows that your profession was not mere lip service, uh, but was actual, uh, an actual true profession, uh, and that will follow. Your genuine faith will produce good works, not necessarily overnight, but over time, as we become more uh, attuned to the will of God, as we, as we become more in touch with the Holy Spirit, as we read our Bibles, as we pray more, as we are able, as we become uh, more mature in the faith to hear the word of God better, we will obey him more, uh, we will trust him more, we'll produce more good works. Uh, Paul said we're saved by grace alone, right? We're We've just read those verses. We're saved by grace alone. And obviously he's right. But James said that faith without works is dead. And so you have this faith component, but it's followed by a works component that validates and proves the, uh, that the faith is real. And I think that's what Jesus was talking about uh, in this passage. That's the will of the Lord. Now, the faith of the people who were crying out to him, Lord, Lord, in our passage, were apparently not true believers. Their faith was defective. Uh, so we want to ask ourselves, what makes their faith defective? Well, 
the first thing that we need to understand is that defective faith only involves a verbal profession. That's all they have is to call on the name Lord, Lord. Now think about these people who are calling the name Lord, Lord. By uh, appearances, they seem to be religious people. They're not apathetic about where they're going to spend their eternity. They call him Lord and they want to enter into the kingdom of God. So what's the problem with their profession? Their profession seems to be empty. It seems to have not been followed by obedience. So they're making a, a claim to Jesus's name. They're calling on him without any obedience, any commitment to him. And so he will say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I want you to think about it this way. If I profess my love to Molly, uh, and then I cheat on her, and then I hit her, and then I go out and I gamble away my paycheck. Uh, what is that profession of love worth? It's absolutely worthless, right? Uh, my profession of love is worth something when I obey my wedding vows. I, I promise to love her, uh, to cherish her, to keep her, to care for her in sickness and in health. Uh, if my profession is going to be real, it should show itself by the way I behave afterwards. And apparently many of the people who will cry out, Lord, Lord, are speaking empty words uh, without any commitment or any obedience. Their walk does not match their talk. Now, to be sure, it is necessary to make a profession of faith, right? We have to say the words. Uh, Romans 10.9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So no one can enter into the kingdom of heaven without having made that profession, but making that profession doesn't guarantee you entry into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it's more than just casually saying, uh, yeah, Jesus, I, I believe in him. Uh, James says, even the demons believe and shudder. Uh, and you remember the, the demoniac in Mark chapter 5 who came uh, running uh, to Jesus and fell on his knees before Jesus and said, uh, what business do we have with e each other? Jesus, son of the most high God. Those are professions, right? Uh, they're, and they're, they're accurate professions, but that doesn't mean that they're saved. It's more than a verbal profession. It's more than recognizing who he is. We must commit our lives to him to become his disciples through obedience to his commands. So I think we can say this with confidence. We must call on the name of the Lord for salvation to be saved, but calling on his name alone doesn't guarantee salvation. We have to believe that he paid the penalty for our sins, that his death on the cross atoned for our sins, and we have to trust him for our salvation. And when we believe those things, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we want to obey his commands, and then the good works will follow the belief. Now, the problem with these people is that they seem to call on the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, but continued in their lives of sin, and Jesus called that lawlessness. Uh, so true faith is more than just a verbal profession. A defective faith also uh, does works, but doesn't have faith that accompanies it. Uh, doing the will of God requires more than just doing good works. Look at the things that these people will claim to do in verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, which may include healings or who knows. It doesn't say specifically what is included in that. It seems like these people did some pretty good works, and they named Jesus' name while they were doing it. So what we learn from this passage 
is that by themselves, verbal professions and great works are not enough to get us into heaven. A verbal profession is necessary, but not a guarantee. In the same way, good works uh, should follow salvation. They should be evidence of salvation, but good works alone, again, don't get us into heaven. Uh, we all know people who make professions. They say, I believe in God, and they might uh, show up to church on Christmas and Easter and think that they're in right relationship with God. And uh, they may be, I, I can't judge them, but you would expect that the fruit, that there would be fruit that follows uh, good works. Uh, empty professions without real faith are gonna be a problem for them. And we all know people who do good works too, but they're not accompanied by faith. We know people who uh, feed the homeless and give lots of money to charity, but uh, for whatever reason they're doing it, they're not doing it out of faith. They're doing it to glorify themselves or to get attention or who knows what. But if they're not doing it out of faith, we know Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So uh, what we need uh, what is the will of God to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Uh, effective faith is faith plus obedience, obedience that follows faith. We make a real profession of faith, and then we trust him uh, to get us into heaven because we know that he died for our sins and rose from the dead, and then the obedience will follow. Uh, we don't want to hear the words, uh, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Uh, the problem is lawlessness, the failure to believe and obey. Uh, so only obediently calling on the name of the Lord and then doing the works will save. And I think that's what the will of the Father is. So we have to ask ourselves, have we made a profession of faith? And are we producing works that, have sh that show evidence that we are saved? Uh, not perfect obedience, of course. We can't be perfect. We can't obey him perfectly. But knowing that God wants us to become more and more like Jesus, are we submitting ourselves to his will? Are we waking up in the morning saying, Lord, use me today. Uh, help me to do your will today. I, I surrender my life to you today. Uh, these are the things that show that it's our goal to live holy lives. And if we're doing these things, we have nothing to fear from these verses. There's nothing scary in these verses at all. Our sin bothers us. We don't want to continue in it. Uh, we are trying to be more Christ-like. And if these, these things mark our lives, then our eternity is eternally secured. And that's really good news. And so if we have these things, if we have this faith, and if it's followed by works, then we are known by him and we know him. And that's an important thing because in verse 23, it says this, when, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So what does it mean to be known by him? Well, we know that believers are known by him. And if we're true believers, we don't have to worry about whether we're known by him. But we'd like to know, uh, how do we know these things so that we are sure that we're never going to hear these awful words, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, we can know that we know him and we can know that he knows us. And the way we know is because we know that we have trusted him. If we know him, we will trust him. You can't trust someone you don't know. Now, if I needed someone to hold $1,000 for me for a few days, I would trust just about everyone in this room to do that for me. I'd trust all of you because I know you, but I'm certainly not going to go out onto the corner of Buckingham and Plano and say, would you mind holding $1,000 for me, right? We're only going to trust. We're only going to entrust something of great value like that to someone that we know. 
And so we know that we know him and are known by him because we have relinquished control over our own salvation to him. We're not depending on ourselves anymore. We're depending on him and his righteousness. We know him uh, well enough to know that we can trust him and we know ourselves well enough to know that we can't trust ourselves for our salvation. And so we have relinquished control of that to him because we know he died on the cross for our sins and we will only relinquish control of something so important as our salvation to someone we know and someone we trust. We also know because we talk to him. Our prayer lives show that we believe that he's real, that he answers prayer. Uh, if we didn't believe that, we wouldn't waste our times talking to nothingness, right? We know he's there. We know he's real, and that's why we spend our time talking to him. We read our Bibles because we know that he speaks to us through the Holy Spirit, through his word, and he teaches us how he wants us to live through the Bible, and he speaks to us through his word, and that's evidence that we know and are known by him. And we know because our lives have been changed. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. When we believe the gospel, we have received the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We've uh, repented of our sin. We have believed in Jesus for salvation. And we're becoming more and more like him every day. And we should all be able to testify about what we looked like five years ago, what we looked like 10 years ago, what we looked like before our salvation. And we should be able to show, uh, at least to ourselves, marked change from how we are today versus five, 10 ago, and even before our salvation. Uh, we should be loving others sacrificially, putting others above ourselves, not insisting on our own rights, not insisting that we are right, but loving other people, uh, even in place of ourselves. And these things are the things that show true heart change. That's what Jesus has been teaching throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching them, be different. Don't be like the scribes and Pharisees. Don't insist on your rights. Put others before yourselves. Love them no matter what it takes to love them. Uh, and then if you love them well, uh, hopefully uh, they will believe uh, after that. We want them to belong, and then we want them to believe, and then we want them to behave. And if we get those things out of order, uh, we're going to turn people away. So we want them to belong, believe, and then behave. So that is what it means to, to be known and to know him. And if we have these things, if we have, uh, if we have this, made this profession of faith that's followed by works, and if we know that we are known by him by the way that we live our lives, then we have built our house on solid rock. If we've made that true profession of faith marked by obedience, uh, remember, Jesus' audience was relying on the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees uh, to get into heaven. And Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees fools, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, uh, the blind leading the blind. And in this next illustration of the foundations, Jesus said that following anything other than Jesus is like building your house on sand rather than a solid rock foundation. So let's read these verses, verses 24 to 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell and great was its fall. 
Well, really quickly here, we have two builders. The first is the wise man who hears Jesus's words and he does them. And the other is the foolish man who hears Jesus's words and does not do them. The foolish man is the man who builds his house on the sand. And the sand represents the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees or any kind of performance-based uh, attempts at salvation. Uh, today, we might say that sand represents empty professions of faith, works without faith, or anything other than Jesus as the firm foundation. <clears throat> When the storm, which is a metaphor for the trials of life, and then ultimately the judgment of God comes, well, this house that is built on sand is not going to stand. It's going to prove to be counterfeit. It's not real because it's not built on the rock. It's not built on the right foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ. And his house, built on sand, will crumble to the ground. And that's what it means when it says great is its fall. It's not only uh, in this life, he will not be able to withstand the trials of this life, but he will not be able to stand the trials of uh, Jesus's scrutiny when it comes to whether he's getting into the kingdom of heaven either. Uh, the solid rock represents God's word. The wise builder heard God's word and he did God's word. It's obedience. He does the will of God. He's made a profession of faith and he's obedient and that's the solid rock. Now we're all going to face trials in life. We all have faced trials in life. This life is not easy. Whenever we're not undergoing a trial, we can anticipate that there may be one in the not too distant future. Uh, so we're gonna face trials and we're all going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day. And when we've built our house on the solid rock, our house will stand both in this life and in the next life. So it's not only a verbal profession and it's not only works, it's faith proven by obedience. So we ask ourselves, have we entered the narrow gate? Are we on the narrow road? Are we following true prophets and teachers? Have we made a real profession of faith that's proven by obedience over time? And if so, we have nothing to fear. Our house is built on solid rock and it will withstand the storms of life and the judgment to come. And so I've called this message a call to self-examination for good reason. I want us to examine what we are basing our hope on. Uh, why do we think that we are going to get into the kingdom of heaven? Well, we know that it's not by loud professions of faith. It's not by adherence to man-made rules. It's not by comparing ourselves to someone else and deeming ourselves worthy. It's not by church membership or a fine record of church attendance. It's not by our baptism. It's not by keeping sacraments or doing anything else performance-based that we think is going to get us into the kingdom of heaven. We can't contribute anything to our own salvation. It's not trying harder to be righteous. It's not trying to do more good works because we can't be righteous enough. We need Jesus's righteousness, the righteousness that we receive when we trust that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And he credits that trust to our account and blots out all the sin on our side of the ledger. So we need to make a real profession of faith proven by obedience to his commands. And I trust that everyone here has done that. And if you have, these verses are not scary at all. In fact, they are a proof of the astounding grace of God who calls us into relationship with him. He saves us and he keeps us for all eternity. 
A death holds no power over us. A Satan cannot terrify us with his charges and accusations that we are not good enough to enter into the kingdom of God. We know God and we are known by God and our place in heaven is secure. So praise God. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for these verses. We thank you for the opportunity to spend a few minutes examining ourselves here to be sure that our house is built on the rock and not on the sand. Lord, that uh, we have made a real profession of faith. We have called on your name, but it's not been an empty call, Lord. We have truly trusted in you for salvation and we want our lives to be changed. We want to be more like you every day, Lord. Uh, Holy Spirit, we pray, will speak to us, teach us daily what we need uh, to, to understand about your will, Lord, and, and help us not only to hear it, Lord, but to do it, because it's he who does the will of the Father who enters into the kingdom of heaven. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.